Thank you, Cameron. Good morning. I'm not Marcus. I'm not Randy. <laughs> I'm not Brother John. <laughs> I'm Mike Clay. Slightly. I'm a uh, a lay elder here at Christ Church. I wanna I wanna stress the lay part just to make sure you know you're getting your money's worth. Uh, I always try to point that out before I preach. And if I need to scoot this down, let me know because um, I'll be looking down a good bit. Um, reading here. Appreciate Cameron, number one, leading us in worship today after teaching and youth this morning. And been reading such a long passage. I asked him to do it for two reasons. One, he's got the voice of an angel. And then uh, number two, it's a long passage. And we're not, we're not going to dig super deep in 11 verses, but we are going to, we're going to pick it apart just a little bit. I think it helps when you study something that massive, just to read it once all the way through, just to hear it the way it was written. Um, it, it helps me quite a bit. I just have to read it about a hundred times. <laughs> but uh, you might see on the slides here today, mandatory Holy Spirit. You might be wondering, what does that mean? And I, I want to give you an example from my childhood that I still live out every day. Some of you might know my mom, Becky Clay. She's a, uh, a dental hygienist, was a dental hygienist, retired 30 years. Many of you may know her, may have even been a patient of hers. She's the world's greatest dental hygienist. She was mine well into adulthood. But I would see her twice a year, of course. Sometimes, sometimes she'd talk to me about this. We'd have the talk, you know, she'd call it, about oral hygiene. And she would tell me it's mandatory. You've got to brush your teeth every day. It's mandatory for healthy teeth and gums that you brush your teeth every day. And I could, I could accept that and feel it because my teeth would get buttery if I skipped a day, right? You, you, you understood it. But then she would always add in this second piece. It's also mandatory. Yep, y'all said it. What we all dread, the question we hate to hear when we go to the dentist. Do you floss every day? It's mandatory for healthy teeth and gums to floss every day. And I, I don't know if it's just because my mom and, you know, she's drilled that into me. She'd always pray, I pray that you floss every day, and I pray that you get caught for every bad thing you do. And one of those came true. Uh, but the mandatory Holy Spirit, where that comes in, I think we often prove every day, just like the, the, the yellow on our teeth, we prove every day that we need Jesus Christ for salvation, right? That we need forgiveness. But what we often forget about is that we need the Holy Spirit. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to live the way that he would have us live. To, to be who he wants us to be. To actually be righteous. I learned, I finally looked up the actual definition of righteous over the last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, it's not just doing good. It's not just making right. It's having your, your thoughts, your emotions, and your actions all in conformity to God's will. That's an impossible act for a human. Except one, Jesus Christ, of course. It is an act we can only do with the power of the Holy Spirit, therefore I'm calling it mandatory. So we'll, we'll jump to the next slide, Acts, Acts chapter 2. Uh, Marcus did a fantastic job of describing the feasts for us. And, and I want to show you how the presence, how the arrival of the Holy Spirit in the church at least, how that occurred on a particular feast. And how that feast, we know we call it the day of Pentecost. Originally it was called the Feast of Weeks. Uh, but it is relative to, in time, relative to the Passover. And just stepping back in time, I always use the stage as a timeline. We're going all the way back to Moses. This is dependent on which, who your favorite historian is. 
either 1,200 or 1,400 years before Jesus Christ walked the earth, right here. And when God sent Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, he gave them, he gave them a new observance. Remember, the tenth plague was the death of the firstborn. And when the death angel moved over the nation of Israel, all those who observed the Passover, they, they killed a perfect lamb, and they painted their doorpost with blood. They were covered with blood. Death passed over. And they observed this every year for 12 to 1400 years until we get all the way to, not to the very edge, we're almost to the edge, when Jesus Christ came as the actual Passover lamb. He was the Passover. So for 1200 to 1400 years annually, there was an object lesson that your sin would be atoned by a perfect lamb in the future. We look back, you know, we're, we're over there by Mr. Cole looking this way, but it all, it all centers on Jesus. And, and God gave the people also at this time, while they were, while they were wandering in the desert, he gave them another, another feast to observe, this, this feast called, we call Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks. And it occurs 49 days after the festival of Passover, excuse me, 50 days after the festival of Passover. That's why they call it Pentecost 50. It occurs 50 days after that. I know it, it dawned on me really late in life, like, when Marcus and Randy said it, <laughs> but, but it's 50 days, 50 days after, and we won't go into the full detail of that, go back and listen to the sermons from Marcus and Randy, they were excellent, but it involves two loaves of bread that get waved before the Lord, and we'll, we'll see that ultimately those two loaves of bread are Jews and Gentiles becoming one, unified in Christ, something that became true, we'll see a, a really great example of that at the end of today's lesson. But what, what this, this whole little thing that happened about 50 days every year for 12 to 1400 years climaxes on that day of Pentecost after Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross and rose from the dead. So it's, it's 50 days after Christ rose from the cross is Acts chapter 2 verse 4. And that's where we see the Holy Spirit do his work. In the church. Read with me. Acts chapter 2, verse 4. You probably found it faster than me. And I had tabs too. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And they all is just 120 people at this point in time. That's the that's the church of Jesus Christ at this moment in time is 120 people. In one place, verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Pay attention to the word filled. Filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And if you keep reading, you see that there were, because this was, remember, a, a a set of festivals that occurred every year. Everyone within 20 miles of Israel and those probably much further away all gathered in Israel or in Jerusalem at this time. So there's a massive crowd there. And as they walk by, they see these 120 people begin to speak in tongues, which goes on. We can see that they're speaking in languages of the, the areas where these people are coming from. And they hear this early church speaking the wonders of God. And it gathers a crowd. And that's, that's the Holy Spirit coming here. And we'll talk a little bit more about it in a moment. But the main thing I want you to see is that that word, that word fill 
indwell. I'm not sure what, which version of the Bible you have, but this is a unique moment in time. You see, I've got what I call a watershed moment up there. My, my day job, what I actually do get paid to do is, is I'm an engineer, and I work on the rivers, all the rivers around the country. And we, we have to decide what, what when it rains here, where's the water going to show up and what's it going to do? So we divide things up into watersheds. One we all know about is the Continental Divide, right? Rocky Mountains, drop of water falls on this side, it's going to the... Drop of water falls on this side, it's going to the Atlantic Ocean, right? The, what we're talking about today here in Acts chapter 2, a geographic watershed divide, but a, a time watershed, watershed divide. But before this point in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit, of course, has always existed because he is God. The Holy Spirit has always been at work in, in God's plan and will because he is God. Amen. He was present at creation. But up until this point, when you look, we, just like Cameron said in the youth group, we've been, we've been studying David and Saul. And when, when David was anointed by Samuel, it says the Holy Spirit came upon him. Came upon him. And you go look at that, that little Hebrew word, L-E-L, not like the and El, El Mezcal. It means it's more like a preposition, and, and, and it, means, it means on, right up to, everything but totally inside. Like, it, it even means you could go into a crowd. Like, if I walked out in the middle of that crowd, I could sit in, you know, row three, seat 12 back there, and I'd be in the crowd, but I can't walk inside Mr. Rick's. That's, that's this new word that's being used here in Acts chapter 2. This, this fill, this indwell, to never depart again, which we'll see in just a moment, and Cameron just read for us. So I want you to see the, this watershed moment in time, and, and I want to highlight it uh, first in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And I, uh, One of the other reasons I had Cameron read it for us is because it's a long verse, and I don't know if, if it's just the English Standard Version that I normally carry around or the way Paul wrote, writes in Romans, but I feel like I'm reading Yoda sometimes. If, if life and peace you see, the Holy Spirit, you must be filled, you know. Like it just, it gets out of order and it's hard for me to, to just digest it all. So I wanted to take a moment. It's not highlighted on the screen, but I'm, I'm going to pull out and read all the, the verses that apply to a, a mindset, a life set on the flesh first and a mindset and life set on the spirit second. Because that's what these 11 verses, that's why I went ahead and included all 11, is because you're seeing, you're seeing a dichotomy. You're seeing a comparison between two mindsets. Mindset on the flesh, mindset on the spirit. And there's some, some great, uh, of course, tons of truth, but there's some great things to just believe in, in these verses. So read with me. I'm, I'm going to skip through, again, verses 1 through 11 from Romans chapter 8, and I'm only going to read the verses that are set or about a mindset on the flesh. And if you, if it's, you can see them highlighted up here, but you can read along with me. It says, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Those are some, some hard statements. And they were like, 
period at the end. You know, like I keep wanting to find an unless or an if or a although or here's the caveat, but there's, there's periods throughout there. And I, I, I want to pull out two of them, just two for you that, that are on your handout. Number one, if you do not belong to Christ, you do not have the spirit. There's an exclusivity to the God we worship. This, this reminds me of no man comes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus Christ tells us. Same, same way, there's no way to have this filling of the Holy Spirit except by belonging to Jesus. So if we don't belong to Christ, we don't have that Spirit indwelling us and filling us. And then number two, to set the mind on flesh is death. And I want to highlight one thing here for you. Death as an end is a fairly modern construct across the entire globe. Death, death has always been, in most, most civilizations for most periods of time, it's been a change from maybe physical to spiritual. It's been, it's been an alteration, not necessarily just an end. That's relatively new with, with people that taught nihilism, people that picked it up and thought it was a good idea like Hitler, but it's not necessarily uh, what, what the world thought, and it's certainly not what the Bible teaches when you look at death. Death is more about separation. You have physical death. That is our physical body separated from our soul. And then you have spiritual death. That's our soul separated from the love and mercy of God. One of those is much more scary, of course, that second one. But what I want to highlight here is when our minds are set on flesh, it's death. It is separation. It is separation. All right, so we'll jump. Hopefully, if you're going to the bathroom, come back quick because there's good news, not just all the bad. There's really good news. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, if we look at just the verses focused on a life set or a mindset on the Spirit. Read it with me. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Two things to pull out here, and you'll see there, just like we're comparing uh, a mindset on the flesh to a mindset on death, the two points we're pulling out are, are very much just, just the antithesis to each other. If you belong to Christ, you do have the Spirit. This goes back to the mandatory part. It'd be like if every time you brushed your teeth, they were getting flossed at the same time. Don't we wish that would happen? But it's the same thing. We're, it's the ultimate combo deal. Have you ever been to McDonald's with somebody that says they want a number one, but they just want the sandwich? And it's like, well, then just order a Big Mac. You know, it's, it's like that, but we, there's no way to order it except the number one combo meal. If you, if you belong to Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. 
And then number two, to set the mind on the spirit is life. And just like if death is separation, in this case from God, life is unity with God and with each other. As we'll find out, I keep talking about the lows, you know, not, not, <laughs> but these lows, it, it brings people together in Christ, people together in Christ. So, so what does this look like in our lives? How, what does it look like to have a mindset on the spirit? What does it look like to have the Holy Spirit? Uh, I, I hate saying it, but I think it was Rhett Butler, like the, the one we know, not the one, not Clark Gable. But I think it was Rhett. Uh, one, one, one Bible study we were working in, and we were all talking about like who, when we die and we get to, we get to go be with, with Christ in heaven and see all these great patriarchs and see these incredible heroes of the Bible like, who are we going to go talk to first, and what are we, what are we going to ask him, you know, or, or, or her? And, and what, was it, what was it like being at creation? How, how, did, how did the mountains erupt? Things like that. And, and Rhett said, I think probably more than anything, you're going to see people that existed before this Acts chapter 2 moment in time coming to us who live in this period of history where the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, God himself lives inside of us, and wanting to know, what is that like? And I think we've, we've become just a touch. I say we. I'll say me. Some of you, some of you probably do better than me. Most of you. But I, I've, become, I've become very comfortable with that idea and, and tend to ignore it and tend to bring it out only in those moments when I've had, say, say a terrible moment in my life where I've tried everything and it didn't work. So now, Holy Spirit, I got, I got no hope but you to get through this. I've got a pocket full of Pepto-Bismol right now because I get nervous in front of crowds. And, and you know, like rather than reaching for Pepto all the time, I, I should depend on the Holy Spirit more often. Brother John had a really opportune prayer right at the moment where the room was starting to narrow in and my heart rate was starting to go up. And I'm like, oh, no, you know, I don't even have an opening, a bad opening joke like Randy. You know, what, what am I going to do? And, and he came over and he put a hand on me and prayed for me and it just calms you down so much more powerful than than just about not just about than everything else so what does life look like with the spirit I want to I want to do a very quick survey through Peter's life the disciple turn apostle leader of the church in Jerusalem Peter what did his life look like before that watershed moment in time when he was filled with the Holy Spirit and what did his life look like after? And, and I'm not highlighting what happened before Peter's life, that it was all bad choices and sin. You're going to see the very first one up there was a great decision. But we can't, again, sake of time, can't dig too deep. I'm going to borrow a term from one of my favorite pastors, Wayne Barber. Uh, we're going to skip a stone over Peter's life real quick and just, just hit some high points along the way that help us see what life was like for Peter before the Holy Spirit and after. And if you've, if you've got a Bible, most of, most of what we're going to look at on this slide or all of it is in Mark. Mark did a really good job at staying somewhat chronological and brief. Mark also is a much more polite apostle, a much more polite uh, gospel writer than John. He leaves out some of the dirty details that John adds in, especially when it's about Peter. Seems like John likes to, to get those digs in. But... Uh, 
But you see, in Mark chapter 1, verses 17 through 18, this is Peter's first encounter with Jesus Christ. He's been out fishing all night with his dad and his brother. They've caught nothing. He pulls in. He's heard about Jesus, that he's a good teacher, great teacher. I'm assuming there's a crowd that's gathering there. Jesus tells him, cast his net, and you can hear the tone. You know, I've fished all night, but if you say do it, I'll do it. You know, it's kind of like, you know, pointless, but you're telling me to, I will, out of respect for you. And instead of just following through with uh, being respectful, he, he has a miraculous haul of fish, right? And he gets out of the boat, he leaves his dad, leaves his boat, leaves his business, and follows Jesus for the next roughly three years. That, that's pretty cool. He did that without having a, apparently the Holy Spirit in him at that moment, but it was a good choice. It was a great choice. You keep going, Mark chapter 8, and you see that, that Peter was the first disciple, at least recorded, to confess Jesus as the Christ. Jesus asks, he pulls everybody together, his disciples together. He says, who do the people say that I am? And they've got several ideas, a prophet, come back. And then he asks the most important question that every human needs to ask themselves throughout all of eternity is, who is Jesus Christ to you? And Peter responds, you are the Christ. And in that moment, right then, Jesus launches into the plan for the Christ. Why did Jesus come? What was he there to do? Take a look with me, uh, Mark chapter 8. We're, we're going to skip down to, to verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and, and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. If, if you ever hear me say the gospel, like if, I, if you ever hear me say you know, let's talk about the gospel or let, let's try and explain the gospel. Like in my head, because I'm an engineer, I boil everything down, condense it. The gospel is, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like, in, and I'm not alone. I think Paul did that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I think verse 3 says, I taught the gospel. It's the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to you. So that's, when you hear me say gospel, those are like historical, actual things that happen. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here is Jesus. I'm not sure how long this is in Mark chapter 8 before it all happens. But he tells them, look at verse 32. And he, Jesus, said this plainly. Jesus explains this plainly. He's not telling parables. He has his disciples with him. He's speaking very clearly. This is what I've come to do. He does this at least three other times that are recorded in the Gospels. The last time in Mark chapter 14, we won't go there to read it, but they're on their way to Jerusalem. They're on their way to, to start celebrating all these feasts that, that climax in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And he's telling them very clearly, very plainly, this is what I've come for. This is what I'm going to do. And what I want to highlight next is, is keep looking at, at verse 32. It says, and Peter took him, Jesus, aside and began to rebuke him. Not a good idea. But turning and seeing his disciples, he, that's Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see this, this mind that is not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, not focused on what God's plan is. He recognizes Jesus as the Christ. He can't ignore the miracles and the power that Jesus has. But you can see that Peter still has a plan 
for what the Messiah is supposed to do. And that's not necessarily how we're called to Christ, right? We're called to him as Savior, yes, save us. I'm sure Peter had his own idea about what salvation meant. Might, might look more like kicking Rome out and, and setting up an earthly Israelite kingdom. But that wasn't what Jesus was there to do. And, and Peter did what I know I do way too often, and I think is probably the most dangerous thing. He made, and I hope I'm not using the copyright, he made a Jesus-shaped idol. He took Jesus Christ, the man who is God, knew him as Christ, called him Christ, but didn't accept what God's plan was for him in this moment. I think we're going to see that that persists through Peter's life. But uh, also, just note, not a good idea to rebuke Jesus. Um, we'll keep going. We'll, we'll bump on down to Mark 14. Mark 14. So they've made it. The, the Israelite, or excuse me, the disciples and Jesus have made it through their three years of earthly ministry with Jesus. They're on that road to Jerusalem. And he's told them again, I've come in graphic detail. He even tells them, I'm going to be handed over by the chief priest to the Gentiles. That's the Romans. They're going, to, they're going to mock me. They're going to flog me. He gives very specific detail of everything that ultimately happens to Jesus over the next week or so. And, and on the way there, and, or excuse me, not on the way there, now they, those days have passed and they're actually having that last supper with Jesus, the last night that they have with Jesus Christ. And he gives them a little more detail, not just about the cosmic plan of salvation, but about what their reaction is going to be to it. Take a look at Mark chapter 14, verses 26. Start at verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He's letting them know. Once I'm arrested, you guys are going to scatter. You guys are going to scatter, but I'm going to see you again in Galilee. I'm going to go ahead of you. And then look at Peter's response, verse 29. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. You know, I, I can picture him pointing to the 11 other disciples. Even if they all fall away, I won't. Not me, not me. And then Jesus, in verse 30, said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he, Peter, said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And he says that very powerfully, very assertively. Again, remember, just hours before, he ultimately proves Jesus right and denies knowing Jesus Christ. But before that, it's something, when you read all this stuff, and that's why I always move across the stage, and it got too many events right here stacked up, so I apologize. Don't pay too much attention to where I'm on the stage now. But before Jesus was arrested, or as Jesus was being arrested in the Garden of, I, get, I can't say it right, Gethsemane. <laughs> in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Judas Iscariot brings this crowd, this mob, from the chief priest to arrest Jesus under the cover of night in the garden so that they don't start a big riot with, with the people. The first person that puts their hand on Jesus, it says, Mark records it as, one of those with Jesus, a.k.a. a disciple, drew his sword and struck the servant. 
John, this is like John's good detail, he's like, that idiot was Peter. <laughs> and he cut off a guy named Malchus's ear, you know. But Jesus says, of course, put the sword away. And he picks up the ear, slaps it on his ear, or picks up the ear, slaps it back on Malchus's ear, and then he goes willingly. He goes willingly because just like he described it three times very clearly up to this point, this is his plan. This is his plan. No one is arresting him. He is going with them. He is going with them. But what, when you look at all of this time order, what stands out is that Peter, if he wasn't willing to die, he was at least willing to fight for Jesus in that moment, right? He pulled out his sword. He was willing to fight to keep Jesus from being arrested. But then just hours later, while Jesus is, is being mocked and being flogged and being struck and being spit on and all the things that Jesus said was going to happen to Jesus, Peter is outside afraid to admit to a servant girl that he knows Jesus. What changed in those few hours? I don't think Peter ever let go of what the, his Christ was supposed to do. He hadn't bought into this plan yet. And when he saw clearly that Jesus is not there to defeat the Romans, but to be crucified by them, he's, he's not pulling a sword and fighting any longer. And you can, you can feel that pain when you hear the rooster crow three times, and he weeps bitterly. That's what, what, the, what the Bible tells us. And it, it goes on. Flip with me to John, John chapter 21. Last, last chapter in the book of John. And I've, I've heard several sermons and lessons on this. And in John chapter 21, verse 2, it says, Simon Peter and six other disciples are all together. In verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. I am going fishing. And, and usually the gist of the lesson is Peter, Peter's given up. He's going back to his day job. He's gone back to the boat that he left three years ago. And there's this idea of, well, you know, what, what, what has changed? And, and again, when you put things in order of time, flip with me to same chapter, John 21, verse 14. This encounter with Jesus that we're, we're about to discuss it says, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed, revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Peter, at least once, has already interacted with the resurrected Lord since his denial, since Christ's resurrection. And yet, he's still going back to fishing in this moment. And again, I ask myself, you know, for most of my life, I've, I've thought, well, maybe Peter just didn't think that this was all going to work out. That while Jesus was here walking with him on earth for three years, he was walking with God and he, he got to see the miracles and he got to see the power. And it, and it, was, it was easy and reachable. And, and then after Jesus died, something changed and maybe the plan wasn't going to work out. But when you look back at how clearly, how plainly Christ laid out the plan of the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection... And you see that this is now the third time that, that Peter has encountered the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if what Peter is struggling with is not did the plan fail, 
but does the plan still involve me after what I've done? After, after this kind of screw up, you know, and, and seeing it, seeing it in that light makes that encounter where, of course, when Peter's out on the boat and he sees, he sees a man they don't recognize as Jesus, and it's the same thing, he, the man, the stranger at this point says, cast your nets again after a night of not catching any fish, and they catch a miraculous haul. I think, I can't remember how many fish it was, 150 fish. And, and suddenly I think John recognizes, he says, it's the Lord. And Peter jumps in, swims the 100 yards, can't wait for the boat to make it to the shore. And he's so excited to see Jesus. And they have that, that interaction where Jesus asks him three times, probably not coincidence, right? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And, and it's in moments where English is short and, and all three times where Jesus asks, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He's not asking the same thing. The first two times he's asking, do you agape love me? Agape, I don't know how to say it right. But it's 100% God-like love. A guy named J.M. Boise, I love the way he describes it. The two loves that are being used in this passage, you have Jesus asking at first, do you 100% love me? And Peter's responding, ah, phileo, I 60% love you. You have Jesus asking again, do you 100% love me? And you have Peter responding, ah, I 60% love you. And then the third time Jesus kind of steps it down. <laughs> Do you 60% love me, Peter? At that point, Peter's like, you know everything, Jesus. You know everything. And again, I've always, I've always thought, Peter, after all that, all you've been through, can't you just muster up the 100% love? Can't you just tell your dental hygienist that you floss every day? Can't you, you know, and can you just do, can't, can't you just say it? And, and I, you know, I've always thought less of Peter for not saying it, but I wonder if, those words that he spoke back in Mark 14 when he's like, even if they all fall away, I won't, I'll die for you. And then he saw himself fall short. If that's still ringing true in his head, and he's like, am I even capable of 100% love, of that God-like love? And he's still doubting it and wondering it. And it's, uh, I love the quote uh, by J.R. Miller up there. Our hope does not rest in our love for Christ, but in his love for us. Because Jesus restored Peter. And then we get to see now, let, let's, we're all the way back to Acts chapter 2. We get to see what Peter's life looks like with the Holy Spirit. So look, look with me at uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. We, we've sped all the way back up to that day of Pentecost, 50 days after Christ's resurrection. The Holy Spirit fills those 120 people. They're speaking in different languages, huge crowds. We know it was at least 3,000 people. I'll tell you why in a little bit. But a huge crowd gathers together to see this spectacle, and they're like, are these people drunk? And guess who it is that stands up to respond? None other than Peter. Peter stands up and responds to him. And let me tell you about this crowd. This crowd is gathered together for a religious festival called Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. Probably a very similar crowd to who showed up a little over 50 days earlier for the Passover feast, that very crowd that was standing outside of Pilate's like governor's mansion or courthouse, whatever it was, I don't know. But outside of where Pilate was interrogating or asking the crowd, would you rather me let Jesus of Nazareth and who I find no guilt or this known insurrectionist, like, you know, nefarious known bad guy, and they scream out, 
Jesus. And he's like, what do you want me to do with him? And they yell, crucify him, crucify him. And he says, I can't find anything wrong with him. And, and the crowd, this crowd screams, his blood be on our head and on our children's head. They were so certain they were killing a blasphemer. So certain they were doing the right thing. They were calling down the guilt of the blood on themselves and on their kids. On their kids. Go back and read it. Matthew 27. Matthew 27. So Peter stands up before this crowd. And remember, it, it hadn't been 50 days, or it's been just barely 50 days since he was afraid. He knew, he, he knew who Jesus was to a servant girl, right? Look at what he says to this. I'll call them a murderous crowd. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, not Peter's plan, he says, You, murderous crowd, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What, what do you think Peter should have expected that crowd to do after he told them that? Probably what they did to Christ, right? Here he is. This is Peter denying himself, getting rid of his old plan, picking up his own cross and following Jesus, like literally following Jesus in the, in the same way with that power of the Holy Spirit now pumping through him. But here's another key part about life and a mindset on the Spirit that we can see very well here in Peter, is he's not just bold, he's loving. He's not just willing to say the hard thing, but he's willing to say the impossible thing, that God still forgives you. Look with me, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 37. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. This crowd finally understands what they've done. It says, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? You think they're remembering when they called down the blood on their children? Maybe. They're like, what do we do now? What do we do now? And this is Peter's grand opportunity to go, you blew it. You killed God. Deal with the consequences, right? <laughs> That's not what he did. Again, Instead, what he does is look at verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not might, not maybe, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and I love this part, for your children. And for all who are far off, that's us, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So you, you, see, you see this incredible comparison, right, between Peter with his mindset on the flesh and his plan for who Jesus Christ was and what his plan was, and you see, you see this, incredible, this incredible change in this indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And you might be, you might be thinking and wondering like me, okay, great, uh, well, let me have some of that. You know, let's have the Holy Spirit because it just seems like after you can do that, what can't you do, right? What can't you do? And I, I think it's important for us to understand how living in the Spirit truly plays out. That's why I wanted us to look briefly at Acts chapter 10. 
Acts chapter 10. Again, this is after that watershed moment in time. This is after Acts chapter 2 where Peter stands up and gives this incredible sermon. And I forgot to tell you that that murderous crowd who, had, who, were cut, who was cut to the heart, over 3,000 of them that day decided to follow Peter's advice and, and repent and be baptized. And they became that incredible early church who was willing to sell what they had to cover people's needs. They were that incredible church we're still trying to emulate. Um, but after all this, when you go to Acts chapter 10, on the timeline, this is about five to ten years after Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost. Five to ten years after. this, So for five to ten years, Peter has been the leader of the church in Israel. And again, we don't have time to dig too deep into it. But God has to set Peter straight for being a bigot. As the leader of God's church, he did not want to even eat with those who weren't Jewish. And, and those of you that might have read Acts chapter 10, it's the, where the sheet comes down. Peter, in a vision, sees the sheet come down swarming with creeping things, apparently non-kosher things. And, and God says, or a voice says, arise, kill, and eat. It's like, no, I never would do that. Never would do that. And the, the curtain comes down three times, goes up three times, and, and God says, what God has made clean, don't call common or don't call unclean. Amen. And he makes, he makes this serious point, and as, as he's coming out of that trance, basically, there's a knock on the door, and there's some men who Peter would have definitely thought were unclean, Romans no less, who invite him to a, a Roman's house, a Roman soldier no less. And when Peter gets there, in Acts chapter 10, he shares the gospel. Again, just two or three verses. He describes the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. That crowd hears the gospel. They believe it, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And, and they are given the gift of, of speaking tongues in that moment as well. They're speaking other languages as well. But uh, I don't want to get all hung up on, on the specific gift, but more the presence of the Holy Spirit and how... How it didn't show up with any special, like, you know, ritual. <laughs> they heard the gospel. They believed it. They received the Holy Spirit. Amen. And, and I also wanted to point out that this was Peter, clearly for five to ten years, not having a part of his mind in conformity with the will of God. He did not view those who were going to become his future brothers and sisters the way that God needed him to, and God set him straight. I guess to simplify it, we have the Holy, we, if we are in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit, we are still going to struggle with our flesh. Amen. We are still going to struggle, but there's no way to get rid of the Holy Spirit once we have him. He will deal with us. Might take five to ten years, might take a special vision, might take a, a special weekend. I don't know. But he will not let us go. And I, I think I left enough time for the, the band to, to start making their way back up. I have one personal story for you. Um, I'm, I'm not a risk taker anymore, but I used to be one on TV. And uh, about five years ago, I had um, three of my friends that live out west. There's, we used to live in Washington State, my family and I. And out in Washington, I met guys who were really into cool stuff like mountain climbing and whitewater rafting and, you know, dangerous things. And so it was my turn. After I moved back to Memphis, we all got together and still do. We try to get together once a year to go do something fun 
and interesting and maybe a little dangerous. And we went on a, on a whitewater rafting trip, backpacking slash whitewater rafting trip. We went to the Big South Fork in East Tennessee. It's a river that is known for, it's unregulated. You have to hit it when it rains just right and gets the water to the right point. But if you go too high, it gets a little dangerous. And I'd kayaked it before in college. Basically, when we showed up on that weekend to Whitewater Raft, it had been raining for three days. And the water levels in, in the river were just skyrocketing, just plummeting up. And there's a level at which it's safe to float that river. And above that, you shouldn't do it. But I, I knew that the river was going to be a little wild, so we hired guides from Kentucky. Don't trust guides from Kentucky. <laughs> we hired them. We, we get on the boats, and, and before we get on, the last little internet signal I had as we're riding on the bus to get us back, or to, to the point where we're going to put it on the river and float, and this is a remote gorge. It is just sheer vertical walls a couple of hundred feet high and no roads crossing it for you know, maybe 15 miles or so. Once you get into it, there's no way out but down the river. And, and so I'm showing them, hey, the river's already, you know, maybe about twice that level that we're, you know, the, the internet, Google says is safe. You're like, oh, we do this all the time. All that means is we're not going to have lunch on the side of the river because we'll be done faster. You know, and the river is just soaring up. And I didn't want to lose my $125 that I paid. So we all, we all jump in the river. And, and funny side note, all of these people that are in the boats with me, they're just like me. All of our jobs are to forecast what rivers do. And we, we get in the boat. It didn't take long before we realized that the guides had no clue what we were in for. The river, the, the gorge is maybe as wide as this room. And normally there are these massive boulders the size of, of a tractor trailer is kind of scattered in the water. It's just kind of shooting in between the rocks and you pick your line and you go through and it's fun. And on this particular day, the whole river from gorge wall to gorge wall was just white water. And those, those rocks that were spread out, they were waterfalls, 15, 20 foot waterfalls just careening over the top. And the first one we get to, I'm in the second boat. There's a boat in front of me with two of my friends and, and the, the guide. And as they approach the edge, their guide just looks back at our guide and, and is screaming, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? I look at my guide and he's just got a, like, blanks. He doesn't even have his paddle anymore. I don't know where it went. And the boat in front of me with the guide just staring at me like this, they just careen over the edge. And so when our turn get, comes, you know, I'm still paddling to no avail. And we go over the edge and my friend and the guide in the boat with me get pitched like this. They fly out of the boat. I'm a smart guy, right? They have this thing called a chicken strap. It's a little rope around the outside of the boat. I, I grab that and hold on because that sounds like it's named for me. So I grab that, that, little, that little rope. And so the boat doesn't get pitched like the people do. The boat goes straight down. And there's a massive wave at the bottom, a rooster tail, they call it. And it makes it about halfway up that rooster tail, and then it just gets eaten back under, back under this 15-foot powerful waterfall. And so I'm holding on to this chicken strap, got the boat, and I'm pushing myself up, trying to get to where I can get a breath of air. And I'm probably 15 feet below the water surface, not realizing I got no hope. And then finally, I, I reach the point where I just can't fight anymore. And that boat's just sitting there, just kind of surfing around. And, and I realized, all right, I got to quit. I'm, I'm too tired. I can't move anymore. And I decide 
this is the end. And, and I, I apologize to my family already. You know, I didn't think about my family. I didn't think, I didn't see a light. I didn't see Jesus. All I could think about was I'm exhausted and can't do anymore. I am done. And it was right about that time, probably right about the point where I'd either pass out or instinctually take a breath of air that was full of water instead. And the, you ever see a log just sit and circulate and after a few minutes just, just get pooped out and it goes floating down the river? Well, the boat, the boat did the same thing. And I forgot, I was still clutching onto the chicken strap. And so I go with it and I'm bouncing around and a wave pops me back in the boat and I'm laying on, on the boat. I'm all by myself. Nobody's there. But I'm there and I take, I take this super deep breath. I'm sorry I called y'all up here so soon. So, sorry. <laughs> I take this, this deep breath and I'm, you know, like, ah, for the first time, get that incredible breath of air and get life, right? And I think what we do as Christians, what I do as a, as a Christian, is I'm in the boat. I am in Christ. And I sit there and I hold my breath not depending on the Holy Spirit until I bottom out or I have, I have a, you know, a really nice event, youth event weekend where we have a, you know, an incredible high and I'm like, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit. Let me depend on that. Instead of just sitting in, taking four, four second breath in, four second breath out and just breathing. Just breathing. And I, I, I preached this same sermon maybe, what was it, two or three weeks ago in, in Arlington and I haven't gotten any better at breathing. <laughs> it's, still, it's still tough, but that's, that's what our goal is, and that's what's available to us, and that's what I continually forget and don't want to, and that's what I want us to not forget. We have the Holy Spirit, and he is the only way that we're going to be able to live that righteous life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, our, our prayer is that in hearing the same word of God that we've heard from Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 10, Acts chapter 10. Lord, we've said it a hundred times today. Lord, we pray that the gospel is heard. We pray the gospel is believed. We pray the Holy Spirit is received today. If someone doesn't belong to you, Jesus, we pray that today your word, the good news of Jesus Christ is heard, believed, and we pray your Holy Spirit is received for the first time. Father, for those of us, if we already belong to you, May we be certain that your Holy Spirit dwells in us, regardless of our mistakes and failures. May our definition of good and bad, Lord, let it be transformed away from whether we did something good or bad, but, but to be whether we are submitting to your Spirit within us. Lord, help us not submit to our flesh. Help us stop holding our breath once we've been saved and that we're safely in the boat, Lord. Help us to depend on the Holy Spirit like oxygen in our lungs, breathing steady all day, every day. Lord, let us recognize your Spirit within us and pursue to live in your power for the pursuit of freedom, peace, and life. Lord, for unity with each other and with you. It's in these things we pray. Amen.